Amen. Surprise attacks can often be some of the most devastating attacks. If you think of like some of the United States history, you think of some of the surprise attacks and how devastating they really were. If you think of like Pearl Harbor, for example, or in more recent history, you think of 9-11, right? That we were blindsided by an enemy that we had no clue what their plan was. But what if we did know? What if we had gained some sort of understanding of what the plan was for our enemy to attack? Well, then we could plan accordingly, right? We would be able to plan how we would resist the attack. What if I told you this morning that coming in this new year of 2021, you were going to have an enemy attack you? Or rather, what if I told you later today you had an enemy that was going to attack you? But even better, what if God told you the scheme of that enemy? What if God told you how that enemy works? What if God told you how, what their plan was to attack you? The book of Proverbs is filled with all sorts of wisdom for life. But today, this morning, we're going to look at a specific chapter. It's kind of a drama type of story. But it describes the scheme of sin. And as we gain understanding of how the enemy, how sin wants to attack, we can then be able to fight it better. Because I can promise you this, sin is one thing that won't be new in 2021. Though Donnie said we want lots of new things for 2021, sin isn't going away. I promise you it'll attack you. It'll attack you before the new year even comes. So let's take a look at how sin works and how we're to fight it. We're going to start in Proverbs chapter 7, starting in verse 1. It says, My son, keep my words, and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call inside your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. So he lays a foundation before he gets to the drama of the story of the adulteress and how, how she relates, the adulteress being sin, how she relates to people, before he gets to that, he lays a foundation for those whom he's telling this story to. The foundation is, you must value wisdom. Right? And look at the purpose of it. So the first four verses tell us what it means, what it looks like to value it, but verse five tells us why we need to value wisdom. Look at it. To keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. Sin has smooth words. Sin has enticing offers. Sin has a, gives a temptation that seems pleasurable at the time. And it says, the first four verses lay a foundation for how to keep you from that forbidden woman, from that sin. 
So let's look at the first four verses. The first four verses tell us that you need to evaluate our relationship with wisdom. How much value a person places on wisdom determines their response to the forbidden woman. Let me say that again. How much you value wisdom determines your response to the forbidden woman or sin. Just listen to the first four verses. My son, keep my words. Treasure up my commandments with you. Treasure them. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Call insight your intimate friend. It's pretty clear here. The author is saying you must hold on tightly to wisdom. It must be treasured. It must be the apple of your eye. It must be bound onto your fingers. It must be written on the depths of your heart. You call it your sister, an intimate friend even. You must, in your mind and in your heart, have wisdom as a treasure to you. Think of children. Maybe some of you have had children that have had one of these items, but you ever seen a, a child with a special toy or a special blanket that they have to carry around with them? Right? Sadie has gone through this, but it's changed throughout time. So it started with just her original baby doll, then it's transferred to Elsa that she has this little doll of, and then she just got an Anna for Christmas, and so it's probably going to transfer from there, and it already has transferred somewhat to she got a little Bo Peep from Toy Story for Christmas that she has just carried everywhere. Why? There's this feeling of security for that child, knowing that there's something familiar always with them. Something that they understand, whether it's from a movie or whether it's just that they've had this baby since they were an infant. It's something familiar that gives them security. The tightness which a child holds this possession is how intimate wisdom should be with us. That's how tightly we should hold on to it. So ask ourselves the question, how much value do you place on wisdom in your life? And not just asking, do you talk to your friends or do you talk to a parent or somebody else in your life? I'm asking, how much biblical wisdom do you treasure? Now, that can be given by a person at times. But the whole point is that person, the only way that person is giving you true wisdom is if they are confirming what God's word has already told you is wisdom. So how much are you seeking this wisdom in your life? How much value do you place on it? Whether it's time in God's word, whether it's time in prayer, whether it's time spent with other believers around you speaking into your life. Because I can promise you this. As you approach the new year, how much you find wisdom to be worth will affect your ability to battle sin. It's plain and simple from here. Treasure the commandments, write them on your heart, call them your intimate friend, in order to keep you from sin. And we see this fleshed out as the proverb continues to describe those who head in sin's direction. We'll call them the fools. Verse 6. 
Now we switch to the drama. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice, right? So now you have the author saying, I've looked out, and this is what I'm seeing. This this is the landscape. This is the drama that's happening. Verse 7, I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Right? Now, we see this contrasted group of people. These are not the people that treasure wisdom from verses 1 through 4. Rather, these are quite the opposite, right? They lack sense. Sometimes we can get confused because we see the word simple show up there, right? In Proverbs, the term simple is not a good one, right? We often think of it's good to have a simple life, right? I just need my basic necessities and it's good. That's not what simple means in Proverbs, Simple is another term for the foolish, for the unwise, for those who let their emotions control them and get the best of them. Those who don't cherish the wisdom. It's not on their heart. It's not their intimate friend. Right? So this author looks out his window and he sees this landscape of of people lacking sense. And there's two results of them lacking sense. Verses 8 and 9. Verse 8. Passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. So first of all, those who don't treasure wisdom, those who don't hold the commandments dear, they go near the forbidden woman. They place themselves in location-wise close by to her. They pass by the street by her corner, or they even take the road to her house. Those who don't have wisdom allow themselves to get too close to sin. Possibly one of two reasons. Either they think they're going to go to the woman's house and sin anyway, and nobody's going to find out, or they think they're going to go close by, and they have enough self-control to say no. Either way, it's foolish to go near to it. Right? We see this show up all over in the New Testament where Paul's telling them, flee from sin. Don't go anywhere near it. And then we see in verse 9, the second part of it. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night, in darkness, they go at the moment during the day when they think they won't be found out. They go when they think nobody is watching. Isn't this the plot point of so many movies? You have someone who struggled with some sort of addiction in their life and they're so many years sober and then there's this big emotional breakdown moment and all of a sudden it cuts to a scene of them pulling into a parking lot where there's a bar even though they've been spending 10, 20 years sober. Right? They don't ask for help. They don't go to a meeting but instead they place themselves nearby their sin. They go near to it, and they go often during the night, right? So we were watching a movie this past week. It was about, mostly about, a, it was actually a book turned into a movie. It was about a father dealing with, walking through with his son, and his son had a drug addiction, and he continues to relapse and relapse, and finally he's sober for like 14 months, and then there's like this, this emotional breakdown, like some sort of fight or argument, And it cuts to a scene, and what happens? The son is walking along the street at night, 
and he runs into this girl that he used to do drugs with. And sure enough, right? He starts to veer right back. He got close to it, and he was there when he thought nobody was looking. Brothers and sisters, your greatest temptations to sin will often happen based on your location and the time. Now, location could mean a number of things, so let's focus on a couple of them here. It could mean the people that you surround yourself with, the friends that you have in life. We often become those who are the nearest to us. But also, not just friends, but it also, the times when the location, when you think nobody is watching you often in our own house. We often think our enemy thinks our, his greatest feat is to make us fail publicly, but he usually gets us to fail publicly because he first got us to fail privately. Even with your family around, those who know you the best, we are, that is when we are most tempted to be selfish and harsh and prideful is around those Even if it's our family around, we think nobody else on the outside world is watching, so we can treat them how we please. So that's location, but it also is based on time. First of all, because it's during the times when you think people are not watching you, but also based on the time of day is when you are most susceptible to certain sins. Think about it. You're just getting home at the end of a very tiring and stressful day, how vulnerable are you in that moment? When sin shows itself, are you more likely to say, let's gear up for battle and fight against it? Or are you more likely to say, all right, I'm tired? Or during the night, when you're tired and your mind begins to wander, the enemy feeds on those moments to start putting thoughts into your mind. So let me urge you to hold wisdom all the more dearly in those moments when you feel the least like doing so. Keep your Bible beside you. Pray before you go inside the house. Call a friend. Talk to your spouse at night. Whatever you have to do in those moments where you are the weakest, make sure you have something set up that you might hold on to wisdom. Let me just say this as an example. It is a severe problem in your life, if you are in a weak moment and you don't have a brother or sister in Christ to call. If you don't have anybody in your life to call when you are feeling at your weakest moment about ready to sin and you have nobody in your life to call, you have to find somebody. We need each other. We need to be able to to call a brother and sister who's going to come alongside us and work with us. Now, yes, first... Of all, we need Christ, right? We need God working in us who we go to first. But, right, three, three strands are not easily broken. One strand is much more easy to break. So hold on to wisdom more dearly in the moments when you least feel like doing so. Because it's in these moments of getting closer to sin that we end up meeting sin. Which is where we go to into verse 10. We see the tactics of sin. Those who end up going near the woman's house end up meeting the woman. Surprise. 
And we see what her tactics are in these next portion of verses. Now, not all of these tactics have to be in place in order for it to be sin. It can be just one of these. But this is how sin often works in these different ways. Look at verse 10. And behold, the woman meets him dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. First of all, sin dresses attractively. Of course this is true, right? But we often miss this. We live in a culture that says, if it feels good, if it looks attractive, do it. But oh my, how foolish is that? Sin always, always looks like a good decision at that moment. Outwardly, it looks attractive, but it always has a hidden agenda. Sin is not going to show you its ugly head on your first date. Verse 11. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. Right? So we've seen up until this point, those who go near the woman's house, those who go near sin, but now we see the opposite is true. Sin comes after you. Sin is going to seek you. Right? Now, there's some moments, like we talked about this, right? There's some moments that we can't help but be in a vulnerable position, whether it's at home when we think no one's watching, when it's at night when we're tired. You need to go home. You need to sleep. You can't really help that. The whole point, though, is just a reminder. Sin is not just waiting for you to come to her. She's going to come to you. You don't have to intentionally seek sin. It's already in you from the depths of your sinful flesh. She is lying in wait for you. Like the New Testament describes our enemy like a prowling lion, waiting for the perfect moment to just snag you. Verse 13. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, Sin shocks you. For a woman to just walk up and kiss a man in this culture right in front of, right in public was just unheard of. It would have completely thrown a man off his game. It, like, he would have totally been confused and lost by what just happened. It was so out of the ordinary. When sin decides to finally pounce, it wants you off your game. It wants you left asking, what just happened? That's why emotional high moments are so vital. When emotions are running high after you've had a fight with your spouse. Or maybe you've had an argument with somebody at work. Or maybe you've been dealing with a child that just seems overly rebellious that night. When those emotions are running high is when we are most tempted to just snap, make a decision. And sin says, you were off your game, right? You were so caught up in your emotions that you didn't know how to respond properly. Because it's in that moment that it's harder to use wisdom. Unless wisdom's already been written on your heart. Verse 14. 
had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. Flattery. The woman says, I've come out eagerly looking for you. You are so special. You are so important. Sin is going to validate what you already think you deserve. People don't have affairs unless they think they deserve someone better. People don't act harshly to their kids unless they think they deserve their kids to treat them better. And you are not unforgiving or bitter towards someone unless you think you deserve to be treated better by them. When sin comes, it comes making you feel all good, all right about that feeling that you already have. It tells you you should feel that way. You are right. You are special over everything else. Regardless of what God God tells you to do, you're the most important one in this moment. Flattery. Verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. Sin always promises pleasure. The woman says, I have all of this, these elegant things for you. Let us delight ourselves with love. Sin promises that you will feel good as a result of choosing it. This kind of already goes with the flattery and with the dressing attractively, but there's always some sort of pleasure involved in sin. Always. There's always something that you think is going to make you feel good when you make that decision. It's not just sexual sin, but it's in all types of sin. Right? When you say, I'm going to hold a grudge and be unforgiving towards this person, you feel good about doing it. You feel like you're acting in justice. Or you feel justified in your anger when you're being harsh with someone. Or throwing insults at them. Or you feel like you've worked hard and you should deserve all these material blessings when you start to get greedy about what other people have. Or you think you're right. You think, I deserve to choose whatever friends I want, even if they're ones that are not healthy for me to have. I can decide what's best for me. Because it makes me feel good to be around them. Sin always promises pleasure. Verse 19. For my husband is not at home, He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. Sin always denies consequences. She promises to this person, my husband will never find out. Sin always promises you, you will feel good, you'll feel pleasure now, and you won't have any price to pay later. But there is one. There's always a price to pay. Right? Even for Christians, right? Even if our ultimate price of 
being eternally separated from God, having his wrath poured out on us, even if that payment has already been paid by Jesus, our decisions we make to sin still affect our lives. Your life as a Christian can still be ruined by your choices. Even if your ultimate penalty has been paid. So brothers and sisters, recognize that any of these tactics, when you start to see them show up, are moments for you to cling to wisdom. So be aware in your life of what looks attractive to you. Or understand when the moments are, when you're going to be most easily thrown for a loop and off your game. Be conscious of what you think you deserve in life. Where is it that you see the promises of pleasure? And where is it that you think you're going to get the pleasure without any consequences? Because it is in falling for these tactics that we see true disasters start to take place. We see where they cave to sin. The caving to sin. Verse 21 With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. Right? All of these tactics culminate in a moment of decision. All these offers are laid on the table. And for those who don't treasure wisdom, those who don't have God's word, God's people speaking into their lives, holding on dearly to those commandments, the smooth words of sin win. We're compelled by what she offers us. The fool chooses her and follows after her. Which leads to verse 22. All at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver as a bird rushes into a snare. He does not know that it will cost him his life. When you decide to follow the woman, when you decide to go into that sin, when you have this moment of decision and you say, I'm going to choose this promise of pleasure against treasuring wisdom, you're headed to the slaughter. You've been so persuaded by the attractiveness, by pleasure, by flattery, that you're going to ignore wisdom. You don't hold it dearly. But there's a price to pay. Though she told you there wouldn't be, there is one. Verses 23 tells us that. An arrow pierces its liver. A bird rushes into a snare. Does not know it will cost him his life. We just said Christians can even ruin our lives with sin. Those who don't have Christ do ruin not just this life, but the next life with their sin. You ever seen one of those suspense movies where like somebody breaks in the house or there's some sort of you know suspense thriller going on inside the house and then like you see the person who's the victim finally escape the house and then like this is like the climax moment right you think the movie's about to be over they're finally safe and they turn around and go back in right you ever see that happen and you're just like this is why i hate these types of movies right like because no logical person does that 
But that's what you and I do every time we choose to sin. We have Christ with us, right? Christ in us, empowering us to walk out the door. And we walk out the door and then we're like, that still looks pretty good. Let me go back in. And we're left wondering, what just happened? Brothers and sisters, every day of your life is made up of moments, multiple moments, with this decision in front of you. Your heart is constantly working, choosing either wisdom or the offers that sin makes you. It comes to you in the way that you drive. It comes to you in the words that you speak, whether it's to a spouse, to kids, to neighbors, or somebody on the phone. It comes to you in the thoughts that you have. It comes to you in the attitude you have at your job. It comes to you in the entertainment choices you make. Every time you pick up your phone, do you ask yourself the question, is this wise or is this foolish? What am I looking for when I pick this up? We have to be conscious of our own hearts and why we're choosing what we're choosing. And are we treasuring wisdom or are we letting ourselves get close to sin? Or maybe even choosing to go into sin? You have to understand yourself. And you have to train yourself to believe that the way of wisdom is better. To cherish that way of wisdom so that you will choose that way of wisdom. As we get to the end here, we see the author give some final advice on resisting this sin. Verse 24. And now, O sons, listen to me. Be attentive to the words of my mouth. Advice number one, pay attention. First of all, pay attention to God's wisdom, first of all. Give your mind, give your heart, give your will over to God's wisdom. Don't ever Let yourself believe that you can do it on your own strength or on the advice from your friends who are weak, who really don't have God's wisdom to give you. Instead, give your attention to the words of wisdom from God himself. And in doing so, not only will you know the right way of life, but you will be able to recognize the tactics of sin when they come at you. The more you treasure God's wisdom, the more clearly you will see sin when it shows up. And as you pay attention, as you treasure God's wisdom, you will have a heart that stands firm. Verse 25. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. You only turn aside to her when her offers are more compelling to you. But if your heart is strong in the wisdom that you treasure, you have no reason to turn aside to her because you already know what direction you're headed in. Right? It says, it says, do not go astray. We only call a dog a stray dog when the dog is lost and doesn't know where it's going. You're only going to stray into sin's path when you don't know which direction you're headed in. And you know which direction you're headed in by treasuring wisdom. And God's telling you, this is the direction I want you to go. This is the direction that's going to be the most pleasing to me and which is going to give you the most satisfaction. There's a reason why Jesus calls it the narrow path. Verse 26. For many a victim she has laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. 
There's a broad path that many choose. And there's a narrow path that few choose. And you realize, if you treasure wisdom, if you walk with the Lord, you realize what the end is for those who take her path. Many have been a victim. Many have been slain. Verse 27. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. Her house, sin's house, is on the way to death. That's what Sheol is, the place of the dead. Sin's house is on the way to death. A life separated from God, ultimate eternity apart from Him. But also, we've already talked about this, right? Also, even disruptions in our Christian walk. If we choose to sin, we're still going to experience a chasm, a distance between us and God, in some sense. That doesn't mean you're not forgiven. It just means that you're not walking closely to Him. You're not calling wisdom your intimate friend. So realize the end of sin's path, the end of the woman's path. But you only keep this in mind if you're treasuring wisdom. Otherwise, you're going to believe her offers. You're going to believe her flattery. You're going to believe her promises of pleasure. You're going to believe that there's no consequences. Here's the reality, brothers and sisters. All sorts of people in our world can take parts of this and apply it to their life. Even people who don't believe in Jesus can apply some of these principles from Proverbs to their life. But, in order to truly treasure wisdom, in order to truly live in a way that pleases God, it has to be done in Christ. Just one page over. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, and we'll end with this one. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Wisdom begins with fearing God. And you only fear God if you begin to know who God is. And you only know who God is if you've been reconciled to God through Jesus. Jesus is the one revealing the Father to the world. If you're rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. You don't know the Father. You don't fear the Father. So how can you begin to have wisdom? So you may see people able to take bits and pieces of this, and it looks like maybe they're applying wisdom to their life. It's not true wisdom. It it may be bits and aspects of it, and you're getting glimpses of what a life that could be, but it's not real wisdom because they're not fearing the Lord. We can't see God rightly. We can't know who the Holy One is if we haven't had our sin paid for. And in having our sin paid for, we are given the Spirit who gives us the power to resist sin. The power to say, no, this way's better. You have to even begin to question, even if you see somebody on the external part of their life living something that looks like what God wants us to live, you don't know the motivations of their heart. Our our sin runs so deep that people can choose things that look good externally, but be doing it for evil purposes. 
So true wisdom only comes from truly fearing the Lord, which only comes from trusting in Christ. So let me urge you into this new year this week. Trust in Jesus. Fear the Lord and treasure wisdom. Know who God is. Consider his way more valuable than any other path. And you will be able to withstand the scheme of sin. Because you're not fighting in an approach to victory. You're fighting from a victory that's already been purchased for you in Christ's defeat of sin at the cross. Let's pray. Father, as we approach this new year, may we recognize sin is not going to be a new problem to us. But may we fight it with a new mentality, understanding that we must be empowered by your Spirit, which we only receive by trusting in Christ and what he's already done at the cross, the victory he's already purchased for us. And as we walk in relationship with Christ, may we be reconciled to you and walk with you, treasuring the wisdom that you've given us. May we cherish it. Consider it the apple of our eye. Call it our sister. Call it our intimate friend. May our church be defined this coming year and for years to come as those who treasure wisdom because we treasure being reconciled to you by which we've trusted in Jesus. So help us. Give us strength. Empower us by your Spirit this week and in weeks to come to resist sin, to recognize its scheme, to understand our own hearts and help us to treasure wisdom that you might keep us safe, that you might give us the power to say no, that we might walk more faithfully to you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name.